I remember sitting in the floor of my bathroom, just bawling my eyes out. You know, I was exhausted and I was kind of dipping back into this place of depression and I thought, will I ever be free of this disorder? Like, will I ever feel happy? Will I ever be enough? I had a light bulb moment. Um, I'd say that was like my first epiphany was that I've got to want to change. I've got to want to love my life and love who I am. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. I'm very excited to be joined today by Holly Baxter, a dietitian, science educator, author, speaker, and professional athlete in the sport of bodybuilding. Growing up in Tasmania, Holly had a heavy involvement in sports in her early life. However, when she began competing more seriously, the emphasis on her performance and appearance set her up for an extremely difficult struggle with binge eating and bulimia, which left her wondering whether she had any intrinsic value as a person. Like so many of us who have suffered with an eating disorder, she found the only thing that she could control in her life was what she ate. In this episode, Holly and I talk very candidly about the tricks the mind can play on you when you're struggling with an eating disorder and how she got to a place where she was then able to ask for help. Holly now works with women in the bodybuilding space to create healthy relationships with food and to break down the barriers for how women should look. So I'm going to start by asking you about your journey with various eating disorders which you've spoken about. So how did they first begin and manifest themselves? I guess it started for me when I was probably about 15 years of age. I feel like I was under a lot of pressure, um, pressure internally, um, pressure externally from my family. And, you know, I, I, there was a lot of goals around being the best athlete, being, you know, the best student, um, you know, making sure I got the best grades. And I think I wanted to impress my parents. I, you know, I didn't want to let my coach down and, I was really burning the candle at all ends, um, you know, as, as a teenager. And I think, you know, I've got struggles going on in my home life. I was struggling at school with just not feeling accepted or like I fit in anywhere. And then, you know, the only time that I really felt like I would ever get any, you know, validation or feelings of worthiness from my peers or my parents, you know, is when I was performing really, really well. So, that kind of set the standard, I guess, for, you know, how I approached life as an adult. But, you know, during that time um, in my high school years, I I guess I started uh, to develop uh, an eating disorder. And I think that really stemmed from feeling like I had no control over anything. 
I had pretty strict parents, I would say, overly strict. And then I uh, didn't really have anywhere to go to, to, you know, confide in or talk or support. You know, when I was really struggling at school, I was also in a relationship or I don't really say I, I was dating somebody when I was that young, but it was not a great experience and I was sexually assaulted. And that was really, really traumatic. It was really difficult to kind of navigate that when I didn't have anybody to go to at school. I didn't have anybody that I felt I could trust or that I felt safe around in the home environment because, you know, there was a lot of criticism from the home too. So I kind of was like dealt with all of this stuff internally. And the only thing that I felt like I could do at that point was control what I'd put in my body. It was kind of coupled with a couple of comments from my coach who was comparing me to another athlete that uh, he worked with. And, you know, she was an Olympic gold medalist. So in Australia, um, there is a lady called Kathy Freeman, who is the, um, I guess, a former world champion 400 meter sprinter. And he kind of made some comments about, you know, well, look at Kathy, you know, she's got a really lean physique. She's very powerful. Um, you should strive to be more like her. And I remember kind of looking in the mirror and thinking like, oh, well, maybe I need to get rid of all this body fat. And so I started to get more praise initially um, when I would look leaner. You know, people would comment and say, gee, you've lost a lot of weight. And, you know, it was like any attention at that point was attention that I wasn't getting anywhere else that was positive. So initially it probably started as a way to be recognized, to be seen in a, a positive light. Um, but then it almost turned into like the only thing that provided me with any comfort. So it kind of spiraled into, I guess there was a six month period where I probably had anorexia. And I remember my mom taking me to my general practitioner and saying that this is one of the most deadly conditions people can have. You know, it, there's a lot of death associated with someone that has anorexia. And I guess for me, I was already in this environment where I had this really like restrictive like lifestyle in my household. And now it just got 10 times worse because now not only was there, you know, helicopter parenting and overbearing, you know, not having any privacy or, you know, sense of autonomy to be myself, where my mom wanted me to be exactly what she wanted everybody else to see. And, you know, her perception of other people's opinions was the most important thing. Um, now she was like hovering over me about everything that I ate. And it was like, I cannot get a break. Like, I'm just let me be me, you know? So, it was a really sad time. I think I felt so alone. I felt so unheard. I felt so unloved. And the food ended up becoming a habit for dealing and managing my emotions. So that's kind of where that binge eating disorder type behavior um, came in. And the problem was I was competing as an athlete. I was trying to perform and, you know, do a lot of sport. And it just didn't go well together. Like when you're doing all this training, like I remember just being absolutely exhausted. Like you'd come home from a day of school and then, you know, you're off to the track and you're going to be there for a couple of hours. And, you know, I might have eaten, you know, a slice of bread and a can of tuna. And then like I was worried about having something else. And 
my performance started to go down. I started to get injuries and I was still getting recognition from my physique, you know, like I was still getting, you know, attention from some people about being leaner. But then I was also internally so unhappy because I couldn't sprint anymore. You know, I wasn't doing as well. So like the one thing that I felt like I could be accomplished in was being, you know, taken away from me by my own doing, but now it was a habit, you know, that restrict binge cycle was kind of set in stone and I didn't have any other coping strategies at that point. So that became bulimia um, because I was still focused on maintaining this, you know, unrealistic physique. So yeah, I kind of oscillated between, you know, periods of, you know, extreme overeating and during those overeating episodes, you know, I probably would have consumed anywhere from like 3,000 to 5,000 calories, which is, you know, at that time, my daily requirements were probably only about 2,000, including the exercise that I was doing. So, um, you know, I was purging, overeating, purging, restricting, and it was just this vicious cycle. And it continued for 15 years. And this is all the while whilst I'm now, you know, I've gone through this period where I was uh, suicidal. I attempted suicide on two occasions and was hospitalized for a good, you know, several months. I think I was kind of back and forth from school, not being able to or allowed to go to school um, because I was, you know, a high risk. And, um, you know, I understand all of the ramifications and the consequences that came with that. I was so angry, you know, at all of the adults in my lives because they were, you know, again, restricting me from what I wanted to do. And yeah, I was really, really, really in a bad place. And yeah, I was uh, clinically depressed. And uh, it was right around the time when I was needing to make some pretty huge decisions in my life to go to college. So that's kind of what was going on for me, um, you know, when I was a kid. Well, no, thank you so much for sharing that incredible journey. And I, but I also think that self-love is something that I want to maybe dwell on now is how have you managed to create that sense of self-love? Because I think so often girls with eating disorders really, really struggle with that. And it's that self level of self-acceptance that comes with recovery that's so crucial. So how have you managed that? Honestly, I didn't manage it at all. Um, Like I said, I think that went on for about 15 years. And, you know, I had gone through, you know, the education system. I was, you know, I'd finished a bachelor's, I've done a master's and was like working in the field, you know, whilst some of these behaviors were continuing and ongoing. And I think one of the reasons that I wasn't able to recover more quickly comes down to ultimately not having a good, um, you know, positive influence in my life. And, you know, I, I've spoken to so many people that have gone through similar struggles. And one of the key things in their life um, was the ability to, you know, seek help, seek support, um, or have supportive people in their lives that were able to help them, you know, see who they really were. That requires a lot of very intentional work when you've been raised in such a way that there is nothing else about you other than, you know, your performance and, you know, what you can give to somebody that makes you a valuable human. Like your entire self-worth, your entire identity is built upon the foundations of giving um, something or providing or, 
You know, there, there's nothing about you inherently that is enough on its own. So I think the first step for me was uh, starting like a road to um, like therapy. So uh, it wasn't actually until I moved to the US that I finally made the time um, to find a therapist that I aligned with. Now, I had tried one or two therapists throughout my early career, but because I didn't have an outside influence um, that was encouraging me to, you know, get professional support or, you know, have you read this book about, you know, body positivity or have you considered, you know, these things? I never really had a strong set incentivization to change. And I was getting the attention, you know, from being an athlete. I And I, I just didn't have that internal motivation to change. And it, this went on for years. And I think it wasn't until I was about 26 years old. And I remember sitting in the floor of my bathroom, just bawling my eyes out. You know, I was exhausted from this cycle and I was kind of dipping back into this place of depression and I thought is will I ever be free of this disorder like will I ever feel happy will I ever be enough and I think it was kind of I had a light bulb moment um I'd say that was like my first epiphany was that I've got to want to change. I've got to want to love my life and love who I am. And it was around that time when I'd been introduced to some individuals that were far my senior that had overcome some of the similar challenges that I had and really started to influence the types of people that I would spend time with. Like social media had kind of really just kicked up at that time and they started kind of pointing out, you know, that there are some unintended consequences of following certain types uh, of social media accounts where, you know, maybe you're doing a lot of comparison and, you know, perhaps you could try following some of these types of accounts. So, you know, it was kind of like all the things and the pieces fell into place. I had the motivation and the means financially to get a therapist and it was consistent therapy. I hated it. I had anxiety every time I knew I had to have a therapy appointment. I can't tell you the number of times that I would, you know, almost text the therapist and say, I'm going to cancel because I felt sick because I was like, what am I going to talk about? Like, I was so worried about, like, almost having to perform for the therapist, like, you know, because I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. And again, a lot of this stems back to not having the skills to deal with different types of emotions. And, you know, I'd never been directed in any way uh, as, you know, a, a young person. So I almost quit and I stuck it out. And I can say now that the last six years, I have probably been to, I would say, or missed five weeks total each year um, of therapy, but that's the like consistency of my my therapy intervention. But I was so exhausted, and I didn't want to live like that anymore. So, yeah, regular therapy, amazing mentors, and influences that really helped me uh, understand that I was enough. And partway through that journey, I actually stumbled into, uh, I guess, spirituality, <laughs> which is really unusual. Um, and to think back on this now, I grew up without any religion. 
I, I remember doing scripture in like primary school, but you know, I didn't have any um, religious influences in my life. My family was agnostic, so they weren't non-believers, but they certainly weren't believers, and there was no, you know, spiritual influence at all. Like I, don't, I wouldn't would have known how to do a prayer. Uh, that made no sense to me. So, I think it was when I found um, spirituality and just the, the goodness in people and the kindness and the warmth that would come over you when you would go into this church environment. You felt safe. And, you know, free to be you. And then the messages consistently week after week where, you know, know your worth, know your value, be kind. And it was just like all these fireworks were going off because I finally found a group of people that I resonated with that were super optimistic, that were positive, that would always try to see, you know, the good in everything. And it gave me hope. So... You know, just that consistent support system and, you know, positive influence. So rather than being on my own, alone without any support, alone with your own thoughts, which in my life had always been pretty, you know, pessimistic. I'd never had a positive influence. Like you can do whatever you want. It was always, you know, well, did you think about this? Oh, no, the devil's advocate, you know. Yeah, I just think things fell into place. Yeah, I think it's that feeling of safety that's so important to recreate because I think those of us who have eating disorders, we so often have that punitive script that just plays on and on and on in our heads and actually stepping outside of that and removing yourself from that toxic triangle, whether that's within your family or in a relationship, can be just transformative. But again, another thing you point out, which I think is so crucial, is that you've got to be ready for it because that willfulness has got to be replaced by the willingness to change. And it feels shitty, that process of trying to change. You have to sit through a lot of anxiety, a lot of bodily anxiety. With exercise, I find it especially hard because there's such a chemical addiction to the, you know, the endorphin release that you get from it. So there's such a combination of things. And as you say, finding that safe environment and that love and that support from a community, whether it's through the church, whether it's through a local community, whether it's through a, a new group of friends. But so often, I don't know whether you found this, but old friendships can replicate the relationships that you've had maybe with your mom or with an internal family system. So you often have to form new friendships, which aren't toxic and you're not repeating that same old pattern. And I think also like if... If you've been in a toxic, um, you know, whether it's a romantic relationship or, you know, friendships, people that are, I guess, raised in potentially like a narcissistic environment, you know, you become somewhat of a people pleaser. So in your efforts to feel accepted, you go over and above to do things for other people. And in the wrong relationships, that can be extremely damaging because you end up being used. And, you know, I think long-term that can become something that you are codependent upon. It's like you were so accustomed to certain types of behaviors. And if you're not a self-aware person or, you know, you haven't got somebody in your circle of friends that's able to kind of point things out to you, that can be a really difficult position to be in um, as well. So I, I love what you said about, you know, your circle of friends. That is really something that I think I hadn't done a whole lot of reflection on. So in my earlier days, I, I don't know that the people that I was spending time with were necessarily the right people for me. 
and it's taken many years to um, have enough a sense of value in myself to actually be a little bit more choosy with, you know, who do I spend my time with? Uh, how much time do I give up to other people? How much do I want to do for other people if uh, that relationship doesn't feel balanced? And I guess my entire life up until like maybe age 25, I was in relationships where it was extremely unbalanced. I was the, the giving uh, person and it made me become somebody that is very much a codependent. And until I read a book about codependency and what that can look like, did I realize, wow, I need to cut myself up from all the relationships that I have and really start, you know, deciding and being intentional with who I'm going to be friends with. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. As you say, it's almost like we treat ourselves so badly that we feel it's an honor if anyone likes us. So it's so complicated. It takes a lot of confidence, I think, to step outside of that and to realize that you are enough and people do like you for your essence and as you. And instead of it being about your achievements, as you've alluded to as well, which, again, I think is something I struggle with, too, is feeling that they only like me because of X, Y and Z. And if I'm not this elite athlete, if I'm not a high achiever, if I'm not performing academically, if I'm not beautiful, if I'm not, then everything slips away and I'm left lonely, destitute, unlovable and everything falls to pieces and it's realizing that actually it doesn't people love you for you yeah i think one of the other things that is become more obvious now in reflection is the perfectionist you know in me and i know that it is very common in people with uh, eating disorders and disorder eating and anyone that is a really high achiever often then begins to start setting like unrealistic expectations of what they can do. And sometimes that only manifests in certain domains of your life. You know, it might be in relationships or it could be in the workforce. And I know for me, like that attitude was very consistent across everything that I did. So I constantly felt underachieved uh, because I never could do it all. Funny that. And, you know, that was contributing to a lot of my like depressive type symptoms. And I think one of the other key things that was like the stepping stone to like really healing was learning the act of self-compassion. And that was something that had never been demonstrated either in my childhood. It just, it didn't exist. It was like, well, you'll do better next time, you know, um, and oh, well, let's just continue to find something else that you can excel in. So as I started to, you know, trying to be a little bit more understanding of, you know, certain circumstances. And again, it took uh, an older, more mature and wiser mentor to say to me, have you considered that, you know, all these things that you're trying to do and, you know, the physique that you are trying to sustain, um, number one, it is, it's probably unrealistic given your circumstances and that you could really afford to be a little bit kinder to yourself. Like imagine what would you say, and I guess the great example is, you know, how would you speak to, you know, a loved one, uh, a friend, uh, a lover, 
if they, you know, said these things about themselves or if they had such high expectations? And of course, the answer is, oh, I would say like, you know, it's okay. You know, you would offer compassion, empathy, comfort, support. So, you know, I had to intentionally practice that when I first started, I was terrible at that. Like I would say I was going to do it. And then, you know, the next day I'm back doing the same thing. And like breaking those habits is incredibly difficult. And again, I think it was made harder in the beginning because I didn't have the consistency of that support. So, you know, when I committed to reading a book a month, so every month I would make a pact to myself to read a new self-development book um, or something that related to leadership or something that would help me develop as a person. It wasn't always about the eating disorder, but I think that kind of just broadened my perspective on what you can achieve. And it just started to, you know, instill this idea of self-compassion. And that's when I started to learn about, you know, self-affirmation, how you, you know, speak to yourself. What is the inner dialogue? that's going on in your mind, how, you know, what is that narrative and becoming self-aware of the things that you say. And I would make myself do little um, like pushback affirmations. Like if I'd say to myself, oh my God, you, like I'd stand in the front of the mirror. And I remember every morning I would see my body and I was doing body checks left, right and center, you know, pinching my body fat, trying on 10 different, you know, outfits, um, none of them, of course, ever fit nice enough. And, you know, I would have all these horrible things that I was saying to myself. And then I just started pushing back on that. I just started saying to myself, you look great. And I did not believe it. I felt like such a fraud. And it took a long time for me to really believe it, but I did it anyway. And when I get on the scale, because uh, I was still competing for bodybuilding at this time, you know, when I was doing my reverse dieting uh, or building phase, I remember still loathing my physique in those seasons, but I kept saying, you know, why are you letting this upset you? Like your body is beautiful. Like you, uh, it, why does it matter? Like stop looking at the negative. Think of something positive to say about yourself. Think about some achievements that you're working on or goals that you're working towards and how that's going to feel and how much more important that is in life. Like think about what's meaningful. So, you know, I think, so much credit needs to be given to the consistency of the work. And so many people aren't willing to do that work because other things are more exciting. Their weekend partying is, um, you know, more exciting. Their catching up with friends is more exciting. They're, I don't know, doing 15 competitions in a year as a competitor. And, you know, because they're so busy, like there's no time for that. So you can be distracted by all these other things. But ultimately, if you want to view yourself in a different light, you have to be so intentional with what that person looks like, how they talk to themselves, how they treat themselves, and eventually it sticks. I'm only just finding that having struggled for over 20 years and actually changing that internal dialogue instead of that voice coming and saying, no, do more, push yourself. I do the opposite action. I'm like, well done. You're doing great. Well done. This is real. And I just say it out loud to myself three or four times. And it's amazing how the anxiety is just slightly quashed by just taking that action and saying something out loud that's positive. And as you said, eventually that self-acceptance and that self-compassion, it's slow. It's really slow. 
but it does come. And if you had said that to me 10 years ago, I'd have been like, oh, shut up. You just don't yeah, understand and what that, I'm going that's through. exactly the narrative that I had. I was like, this is so silly or meditation, um, you know, or yoga. I used to be like, how can that possibly help me recover? But I think, you know, in a, in a busy lifestyle, which I know so many of us are, and particularly people that are like entrepreneurs, there is never a minute where there isn't something you could be doing. And as the perfectionist, there is every bit of you that wants to be, you know, doing something. So I was just constantly on the go. And I think what made that even more challenging to uh, break those habits was that I always had an excuse of, I don't have time. You know, I'm too busy. So one of my affirmations, and it is on my mirror right now because I found myself doing this just in the last couple of months with a few major life changes uh, and the need to make some pretty big decisions very quickly, I've got slow down on my mirror. And every morning when I get up and I've got a billion thoughts going through my mind and maybe some anxiety creeps in and, you know, there's something that's stressing me out. Like I might catch a glimpse of that and I just, you know, I'll pause and I'll take a big deep breath and I'll be just like, you're going to be okay. You've done it once, you can do it again. And, you know, it's just that moment where I could have allowed those negative thoughts, that those stressful thoughts, those things that are contributing to unease and, you know, bringing your heart rate up and putting you in a direction and a position that is not favorable if you can step in with another thought that is positive, that can be the game changer. It can change your entire day. Don't let those things be a distraction for the person that you want to become. Totally. And I was once described, someone described it to me as it's like your mind is like a parking lot and the cars will try and park. But if then the negative ones, you just can't let them take out that parking space. And you've just got to let them flow through and just they they come in and they come out. And as you say, our thoughts are always going to be there. But it's the actions that we take as a result of those thoughts that are what is going to affect our life in the long term. And I think when you do live in your head a lot and when you ruminate and the likes of us do, you have to learn that it is just chatter. It's just noise and it is always going to be there. And the more you fight it, the louder it gets. And actually, sometimes you just, like you say, slow down, take a deep breath. And being able to be slow is such a skill. So I'm trying to now turn that around. So whenever I have like an empty time, instead of feeling guilty about it, and instead of not manically filling it with going for yet another gym session or yet another walk or reading a constructive article, it's just actually saying, this is a skill I'm developing and this is a muscle that I'm flexing in my brain, which is far more going to be far more advantageous in the long term. And it's going to give me a route to a life rather than a route to a prison and a cage in my head. Yeah. And I mean, I, I definitely still struggle with that myself, given like the uh, myriad of things that are going on for me right now. Um, and then also recently finding out, so I have ADHD. I, and it makes a lot of sense for me now. But, you know, I, I think I'm automatically somebody that is pretty restless um, based on all of the testing that you can do for ADHD. And I guess it's a lot more specific now in the way that it manifests. But restlessness is one. So I tend to be somebody that likes to move around a lot. And then I am also extremely, like, easily distracted. And I think as somebody that is ambitious and you've got a lot of goals that you want to accomplish, it now takes an even extra um you know amount of work a monumental amount of work to not let those other things be distractions for you because 
there are always going to be opportunities. There's always going to be business partnerships that you can work on. There's always going to be like, oh, the next thing. And learning to, you know, set better boundaries and say no and recognize the importance and the value of, uh, you know, some self-care and, you know, being in silence is okay um, and just resting when, you know, for the, your entire adult life, you've been living this whirlwind and it's one of the contributing factors, I think, for people really not being able to make those big uh, changes that they're truly searching for. So I know that for me and for a lot of the clients that I work with, many of them have taken the sole route for healing, their healing journey, which is uh, overcoming their feelings of inadequacy or not being enough or pretty enough or their body isn't good enough and they use the physical route to accomplish that. So, you know, it's excessive exercise, uh, dietary restriction, and they do feel really good uh, when they get to the end of their goal. Um, and of course, from a physiological standpoint, there are so many reasons why it's difficult to maintain weight once it's lost without you know, careful consideration for the diet after the diet. But knowing that there's this other avenue, this other route that can effectively accomplish the same sense of feeling of satisfaction in oneself for loving their body and feeling they are worthy and enough through the change of the thought, the changed belief, the changed narrative. And if I have any regrets, it was not spending an equal amount of time on my mind when I was young. I was so involved in sport and I completely neglected one of the most fundamental things um, and skills, which was you know, training your brain and knowing how to manage your emotions. And I know there's a lot of people that really haven't explored that route either and are finding themselves in really, you know, with the society and the way that it is towards women and this strong sense of needing to, you know, always look a certain way and that they need to be slim and that body fat in excess is just absolutely unacceptable. It's really hard when you've got so much marketing. And again, if we think about the distractions, and if most of those distractions are these ones that are pushing us in this physical direction, it's not surprising that it's so hard for people to realize that there's this other route. So our job as the educators is to keep people open and aware to the, their options because there are so many ways to achieve ultimate contentment and happiness. And it doesn't have to be through changing your body. But you can do those simultaneously. A lot of my clients are like, well, does that mean you're not going to let me change my body? And I'm like, no, well, I mean, there's health benefits from being, you know, lower body fat. So while we're working towards that goal of changing your physique in an evidence-based way that is going to be sustainable, that we can uh, maintain long-term, let's also work on this other part over here, which is your mind. And it's a lot harder. Like, I don't know about you, but I could push myself to oblivion when it comes to working out. I remember throwing up after training sessions that we would go so hard. And like the physical discomfort, I'm used to that. But what I wasn't used to was the psychological discomfort or any coping strategies to manage that psychological discomfort as you work and navigate change. So that is a skill, just like you said, you know, you're working your brain <laughs> to achieve an outcome. 
I couldn't agree more. It's also reframing, like you say, that narrative in your head and seeing actually the positive in engaging that parasympathetic nervous system, engaging the rest and digest. And I don't know about you, but I think things start to shift. And I sometimes think it's to do with maturity and age. And often when you get more perspective on life and you just actually, you start to feel worse when you go down that rabbit hole of the overexercise, the apps feeling depleted before it would leave you in that sort of high state and thinking, oh, I want more, I want more of a fix. I need this to survive. Whereas now if I go down that route, it leaves me feeling crap because I know that I haven't flexed that mental muscle. And instead I've just basically reinforced the demon in my head. And actually I know that I'm just making the bars of the cage thicker and I've got less of a chance of living the life that I want to live, which is why your list of what do I want out of life and what am I sacrificing is just incredibly powerful and daily affirmations and that consistency which you refer to which I think is just vital because again if you don't have the consistency and if it's just that's why therapy can be so challenging if you just have these sporadic sessions and you expect change over a period of time you're just not going to see it it's got to be daily it's got to be hourly it's got to be things that you can do yourself and it requires real discipline and sitting through real discomfort too yeah, absolutely. I think as you start to become more aware by slowing down and listening to those thoughts, often what you will find is there's a lot of things that you may not like about yourself. I know that was certainly the case for me, and I think it did definitely get worse before it got better. <laughs> so, you know, that that process of change is uncomfortable for so many reasons, and you'll often discover, <laughs> I think, walking back it's not that you justify your current behaviors, but, you know, I think looking back historically to the way that you were raised and the influences in your life and your upbringing, it helps bring about understanding. And I think if you can understand where something came from, it gives you a peace of mind. And now you've recognized it and you have this ability to make a change and do it differently. And I think during that process, there's always regression. And the really obvious example that I can call upon is clients that are um, in this process of allowing foods back into their diet that they may have had on their forbidden list um, for a very long time, or you know, it was restricted because they had so many um, preconceived ideas about their body and how it should be. And Number one, like learning and becoming educated about nutrition, I think is an invaluable skill to have because, you know, now you've got facts and data to help make better, more informed choices. But <laughs> as you are reintroducing some of these foods, there is this expectation for so many people to feel like when that food is now taken out of the, the highest shelves and it's put back in eyesight or I've had and I have used you know, during competitions, like a lock box, like it had to be away or I couldn't control myself. Like that's the point of restriction that I had put upon myself. And, you know, clients doing the same thing, they're like, why is it that now when I try to give myself a serving of ice cream, do I feel like I want to eat the entire tub? Like what is wrong with me? And you know, I'll, you have to approach that with some compassion and empathy and try to help people realize that if you've restricted something for a long time, of course, you are very compelled to want it again. And 
Um, historically speaking, that food may not become available to you ver- ever again. If you've been somebody that has tried or had ice cream or cookies or whatever the food might be, and you usually would put it away and you're never going to get it again. So, of course, if it's the last time you might see this, your habit is to eat it and eat it and eat it until you uh, it's all gone because who knows when you'll get it again. So I think people need to reassess and readjust their expectations of how that process is going to look because it's really hard. And if you've had a habit for 10 years, what makes you think that that habit can be undone with just a few attempts at eating this food, reintroducing it into your life again without, you know, feeling out of control? But you've got to start somewhere. So, you know, there are certainly ways that we can kind of help regulate somebody's caloric intake for them um, if they're still, you know, very much in this fear state of weight gain during this process. And lots of people are. I know I was terrified. But eventually over time, those strong emotions, those, you know, urges to just keep eating and keep eating, they soften. And all the while, if you are working on your um, body confidence and body positivity and learning to self-love and self-care, everything slowly starts to dissipate and it does get better. But it doesn't mean that we don't have regressions where, you know, I mean, even for me, I have absolutely in the last year really overeat. Now, they're not binge eating episodes where I completely dissociate from my body. I am down in my subconscious somewhere because I'm so emotionally overstimulated that I have reverted to a very old habit, um, which is I need instant feelings of pleasure and I'm going to get it from food. And that happens every now and then. But what happens in that journey of healing is that you become so much better at pulling yourself out and back into your conscious mind because there are different levels of consciousness. We've got your like conscious brain where you and I are having a conversation and then we've got your subconscious mind. And I think a lot of people dip into that land in times of emotional discomfort and it could be any emotion. So you've got to bring yourself back into your body and that requires conscious thoughts uh, to, to get you to that place. So it's quite the the roller coaster. And I think, like you said, the plank staring at Mount Everest sometimes and not knowing where to start, but you gotta jump. <laughs> you just gotta do it. And I think you recently said something so inspiring. You were interviewed and and you did a competition and you were like, I haven't had time to prepare. I've only had I think it was something extraordinary, like less almost less than two months, I think. Yeah. And we- you just went- <laughs> And you were like, I'm okay with it. I'm just going to experiment. I'm going to do what I think as as much as I can do. And for me hearing you say that was just like, wow, she's really reached a point where she's okay with herself. And that's so inspiring and refreshing to hear. Yeah, I think anybody that is listening, um, there is hope. I, and I'm sure, you know, Pandora, like we've been in this place where you just don't know whether you're ever going to see the other side and it is so possible and I think the more people that are transparent and start sharing their recovery journey and that it's not all you know sunshine and roses and it is a lot of work and that it means that there's got to be things that are sacrificed like any goal in life whether it's a finance goal whether it's a relational goal um, business goal if you want to achieve anything 
it requires a plan. It requires consistency. It requires conscious thought being so intentional. And there is absolutely no reason why it wouldn't apply to another goal, particularly if they're ingrained habits. So it is hard work, but that hard work and all of the discomfort that I know I have experienced personally, that I know many of the clients that I've worked with over the years, it is just a sense of freedom that you cannot imagine. And I would never give any of that up because I think it's taught me so many things, not just in the you know, application of nutrition and training and you know physique sports, but the ability to take on life um, with such a different perspective and Ultimately, I feel like I am a thousand times better of a human than I was back then. I've just come so far from a self-development standpoint. And it all started with the fact that I had a, an eating disorder. And it has just billowed into other areas of my life in ways I'd never have imagined. And I just feel so fulfilled. And now everybody has bad days, of course, but it's just put me in this place where I have so much perspective <laughs> And I can take anything that goes on and I can say, well, I'm sure there's going to be something good from this. So don't give up. Keep focused and, you know, keep looking out for these kinds of resources, read, listen, and you'll get there. Oh, well, Holly, you're such an inspiration and for so many, including myself. So please keep talking. And thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. I feel very privileged. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.